So John chapter 2. Now we've talked about the uniqueness of John's gospel over the last three weeks that we've been in the gospel of John. If you remember me saying that the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that is, are referred to as synoptic gospels. And the word synoptic means quite literally seen together. That is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're going to sound the same. They're going to have a lot of the same stories, really. The tone uh, of the Gospels are linked together. They're seen together, kind of, sort of, as one. So they're called the Synoptic Gospels. But after those Gospels were in circulation, they had been written, they were in circulation, being passed out throughout the cities and towns and churches there, it was after the fact that then John came around and penned his gospel, and his gospel is totally unique. And we've talked about some of those differences, but John comes with a different flair, with a different perspective, definitely with a different tone as he writes his gospel. And there are two differences in John's gospel that I want to talk about this morning. One of which is this, that John is the only writer of a gospel who at the end of his gospel actually tells the purpose of his gospel. And that's found in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. And I know that over the last couple of weeks, we've read this quite a few times, but I want to read it again. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, John would say, many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John is the only writer who gives his gospel a, a theme at the end. And he says, listen, there's a lot of things that I could have written about, a lot of things that I could have said, but these things specifically have I written so that you may believe in Jesus. And in believing or continuing to believe, you would find life in his name. Life in his name. But... There's another theme that kind of sets John's gospel aside, and that is this, that John only records seven miracles or seven signs of Jesus Christ. The other gospels by far record many more. In fact, I think Matthew has 20 or more, but John only recorded seven signs or miracles, same term there, same phrase there. And so what John is actually saying in verse 30 here is he says, many other signs, therefore, Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in the book. But these, he says, these what? These seven signs, these seven miracles, these specifically have been chosen so that you would believe in Jesus and that in believing in him, you would find life. So John comes in and he picks seven and only seven miracles, handpicks them so that it would fulfill the purpose of his gospel. And this morning we see, we're going to read about the very first sign. Now it's interesting to me that this sign is not only the first sign that John writes about, but it's actually Jesus' first miracle. However, none of the other gospels mention it. And I think that's kind of weird. Like, if I was a writer, you would think, like, the first miracle. That would definitely be in your story about Jesus, right? You would record the first miracle. Why would you skip that? And so I thought about it. What, I mean, what's the deal here? And the only thing I could think is maybe the guys, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
just thought that this miracle wasn't that big of a deal. Of all the things that Jesus did, turning some water into wine, eh, you know, it's kind of like, it's his first shot at a miracle. You know, Jesus was just warming up. He didn't really know what he was doing. So, you know, he turned some water into wine, no big deal. Nobody really even knew, just the servants and the disciples. It wasn't really a super public ministry. You know, so maybe they thought, well, you know, Jesus can do better. And we know Jesus did do better, so we're just going to skip that miracle. You know, we'll talk about walking on water and feeding 5,000 men with a couple of loaves and how about raising Lazarus from the dead? Like, those are legit miracles. But water into wine, eh, not so much. But John, though, John, with his unique perspective, comes in and he says, not only am I going to record that miracle, but of all the things I could have recorded, this is one of seven that I'm writing for a reason, that you would know Jesus Christ, and that in believing in his name, you would find life. And Jesus said, I came to give not just life, but abundant life. So John comes with a purpose, with a mission, and he picks out the very first miracle here in John chapter 2 that we're going to dive into this morning. So let's take a look. John chapter 2. And on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus also was invited, and his disciples to the wedding. Now, it's important to note that at that time, a wedding was way bigger of a deal even than it is now in our culture. At that time, the groom's family, not the bride's family, would save up and save up and save up because a wedding at that time would last an entire week. And so you would have your wedding, you would stand up front and say, I do, and after you kissed and did the rings or whatever they did back in those days, the wedding party would then, with a torch parade, lead the couple to their house, not for a honeymoon, <laughs> but for an open house for seven days. And the entire town would come to this. And so for seven days, they would eat and they would drink, and they would celebrate this couple's wedding. It was a big deal. In fact, it was such a big deal that if you ran out of food or ran out of wine as the groom's family, you could be sued. They could actually take you to court and say, you ran out of you know, wiener wraps or whatever that you really wanted. And you ran out, and so we're going to sue you because you're out of food or you're out of wine. It was a huge deal. But not only that, the bride and groom were actually treated as royalty in those weddings. They would actually robe them and give them crowns and treat them as king and queen for a week. And the wedding guests would actually have to do what they said as if they were king and queen. And so this was a huge deal. And for many people back then, this would absolutely be, without any exception, the best week of their life. You're getting married. It's a week-long vacation. It's a big party. There's food. There's drink. I'm being treated like a king. I get to tell my friends what to do. This is awesome. This is so great. And so you have to understand that at that time, weddings were a big deal, a really big deal. They were a social event of the whole town when a wedding took place. And so we pick up then 
in verse 3. Verse 3 says, And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Again, this was a huge deal. So Mary has been invited to the wedding along with Jesus and the disciples, which most scholars believe that that probably meant that Mary and Jesus very well could have been related to or close friends with the person getting married. And the wine runs out and Mary feels responsible for whatever reason that, man, I've got to fix this thing. But you have to understand that the wine running out wasn't simply like, okay, who's going down to the liquor store or who's going to you know, go replenish our deal at Safeway, this was a huge deal. This could very well ruin the wedding for this couple. In fact, it could have legal ramifications. So Mary comes to Jesus and, and she says, the wine ran out. Now, it's interesting to note here that Joseph is not on the scene. And many scholars believe that Mary was actually widowed, that Joseph had passed away, which is interesting because Jesus was raised as a carpenter and would work as a carpenter. And so many scholars believe that Jesus was actually the breadwinner, the man of the house while growing up, that Joseph had at some time passed away, leaving Mary a, a widow. And so Mary would have, if you're following along with that tradition, been dependent upon Jesus, been counting on Jesus. Jesus was the man of the house. And regardless whether Joseph was around or not, Mary very well would have known that Jesus would have been the guy for the job. Jesus will take care of it. I can lean on Jesus. And so Mary comes to Jesus and says, hey, they're out of wine. Just thinking, this is my son. He happens to be the son of God. I'm sure he can help out in this situation. No big deal. So she says to Jesus, hey, they're out of wine. And Jesus says, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Now, Many books have been written, many pages have been penned on this one comment of Jesus because it seems a little rude, uh, Jesus' response to his mom there. Um, I want to read to you what I think is really the best rendering of what Jesus is saying here. If you really dive into the language and kind of dissect what's being said, the best way to phrase the first part of verse 4 would be, what do you and I have in common in this matter? What do you and I, mom, have in common with this situation? You see, Jesus had spent 30 years growing up as Mary's son. So his responses, especially being sinless and perfect, would have every time been, yes, mom, right away, mom, sure, mom, what more can I do for you, mom? He would have been the perfect son. And so Mary came to him expecting the same answer that she had probably gotten all 30 years of his life. But just previously, one chapter before, Jesus had been baptized and the Holy Spirit had come upon him. And from that moment on, Jesus would now be about his father's business. Jesus was on mission. And only one thing was important to Jesus, and that was fulfilling the will of his father. He was on a three-year mission to the cross to die for your sins and my sins, and nothing would get in the way of that mission. You see, because Jesus, although he was the son of Mary, he was more so the son of God. And he was about his father's business. And so just a couple days previously, literally, I think it's uh, three or four days previously, Jesus had just been baptized. And his focus was now not so much just being uh, 
obedient to his mom and honoring of his parents, but now his focus had shifted off of the kingdom of the earth, his mom's kingdom, his mom's house, and now had shifted to the kingdom of heaven. And you see that as Jesus goes through his text, as we will see in his stories here, they came to Jesus and they said, hey, your, your mom, your sister, your brothers, they're outside, they're looking for you. And what would Jesus say? These are my brothers. These are my sisters. Those who do the will of God. Jesus was now fully invested in God's family, not so much his own family. It didn't mean that he didn't love his mom, that he didn't care about his mom, but his business, his objective, his vision was for God's kingdom and God's family. And you see that throughout as Jesus seemingly is rude to his own family, saying, yeah, you're not so much my family anymore. It's not that Jesus was rude. It's that Jesus' focus has now been shifted as he begins his ministry, his walk in the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus says, Mom, you and I, we no longer share common interests here. You know, I know we're at this wedding together, and this is maybe family or friends, and I know, Mom, you're concerned, but we don't share in the common interests here. What does this really have to do with me? And then he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, to marry this meant nothing. She had no idea what Jesus was saying, and we're going to get back to that, but this would have been just right over Mary's head. My hour has not yet come. Jesus, I have no, I mean, this hour seems as good as any to drink wine. So, you know, it's five o'clock somewhere. Jesus, let's get this thing going. You know, like, what's going on here? Why, why aren't you acting? I don't get my hour has not yet come. It doesn't make any sense. But to us, it makes sense. And to Jesus, he would say this phrase over and over and over about his hour. And his hour spoke of when he would die on the cross for our sins. When the full uh, revealing of his glory and who he was would be displayed for all to see. That hour had not yet come. It wasn't Jesus' hour yet to make himself known in that way. And so although Mary didn't get it, Jesus understood. And so he gives her this cryptic language, which you'll see him do throughout to his disciples and to the Pharisees. He talks in this code that, you know, at times they didn't understand. And so that's what Jesus says to her. So is it rude? No, but it definitely is very direct. Jesus makes his point here. And so Mary's response is, is classic now. N understanding what Jesus said, understanding the times, and understanding that Jesus had just spoken in code to her, Mary responds in verse 5. And his mother said to the servants, whatever he says, do it. <laughs> I love that. You know, here Jesus comes, or Mary comes up to Jesus. Jesus, we're out of wine, and he goes... Not really my problem. My hour has not yet come. And I can just see her kind of go, that, that's odd. That's not a response I'm used to hearing. Oh, well, you guys just do what he says. And she walks off. Like She just, I don't really understand that response, Jesus, but you've always come through before. So I'm not going to try to figure out your, you know, coded language. And she just tells the servants, you do what they say. And then she evidently walks off. And that always just kind of, it was humorous to me that Mary didn't say like, oh, okay, you know, like, oh, all right, Jesus, I'm sorry. You know, sorry to bother you, or I don't understand. She just goes, eh, you guys just do what he says. It's awesome, you know. And sometimes we don't understand what the Lord's doing either. Sometimes his ways and his will don't always make sense. But Mary here just banks on Jesus, just counts on him. And we ought to, too, and we're going to get into that a little bit further. Going on in verse 6. Now there were six 
stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. So Jesus here sees these six stone, huge water pots sitting there. And these water pots were specific. And John makes a point to to show that Jesus picked those for a reason. You see, Jesus, he came to bring a new wine, a new joy, a new commandment, a new way of living. And so it wasn't just by chance that Jesus said, let's take those water pots that are used for the Jewish customary purification thing, this Jewish religious system, and let's change what that is. It wasn't by chance. Jesus was making a statement. And so these pots, they were made of stone because they couldn't be made of earthen vessels if they were to be used for purification because they had all these rules and all these regulations of how you'd have to go about getting pure and washing your hands. And there's uh, this one scholar talks about how they used to have to take an eggshell of water, like a broken eggshell of water, and each finger they would have to scrub with this water and do this big ceremony to make sure that they were clean so that they could then go and eat a meal with their hands. Kind of funny. But, uh, you know, um, but Jesus here makes a point. He says that way, that system, how it used to be, how you used to have to work and work and work at being pure, how you used to have to do all of these things, I want to take those pots and I'm going to fill them with new wine, with fresh wine, with the best wine. So Jesus makes a point in picking out just those specific pots. And so the servants do just that. They fill it to the brim. And verse 8, he said to them, draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then that which is poorer is brought out. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I like what the head waiter here, he pulls in the bridegroom, and he's like, man, this wine is amazing. And usually they bring out the good stuff. Until everybody's too intoxicated to care about the bad stuff, and then they bring out the bad stuff. But you, you have saved the best for last. That is awesome. And I can just see the bridegroom kind of like standing there with eyes wide open, having no clue what just happened. All he knew 10 minutes ago was that they were out of wine, and he was not standing pretty with his wedding guests, and then all of a sudden, 150 to 180 gallons of the best wine show up, and the head waiter comes to him and says, you're the man, man, you know how to throw a party, this is awesome, and man, he's blessed, and it says there in verse 11, this beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana, and his disciples believed in him, his disciples believed in him. All right, so here we go. We got the story. Jesus turns some water into wine, kind of rude to his mom, and there you go, the first miracle of Jesus. But remember that when John wrote this gospel, 
When John chose this sign, that he chose it for a reason. And that reason, once again, is that you would believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, and in believing in his name, you may have life. So the question is then, how does this miracle give us that result? What is this miracle really talking about? Well, here's this couple, and they're on their wedding day, and they're having a great time. Man, they've gotten married, family is there, friends are there, the entire town is there. They have fame for a week. They have food and alcohol flowing. Everything's going great. They've been robed. They've been crowned. They're king and queen for the day. Man, everything is awesome. You could not have picked a better week, a better day. This was the climax of awesomeness for this couple. The best moment of their life. But at the best moment of their life, when everything was for them, all the cards were royal flushes. I mean, they had the winning hand. It was awesome. The wine ran out. Now, wine, we know through the scripture and in Jewish culture both, so not just because the scripture says it, although that's enough, but Jewish culture both, wine is a picture of joy. In fact, it was an old rabbi saying, which I think is hilarious, uh, was that, where there is no wine, there is no joy. It should be like a bar slogan or something. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Nobody else thinks that's funny? I think that's funny. You know, especially that rabbi said it. You know, like these holy of holy people, they're like, where there is no wine, there is no joy. You know, like without alcohol, nobody's having fun. But be that as it may, and that's not the point of this message, believe you me, um, wine is a biblical picture of joy. It's a biblical picture of joy. And so here's this couple who has everything for them. They have the fame. They have the fortune, so to speak. They have the money. They have the popularity. They have the authority. And no matter what, no matter how good the circumstance, joy ran out. Now, I was talking to this coworker on Thursday, and they were telling me how they used to work in New York City and Miami, and they used to work for this custom Italian shoe place that would, you know, import their leather from Italy in this island, this specific island, and they sold for, like, the lowest cost for a tiny little flip-flop was 200 bucks. And they had this shop there on the main street of, you know, downtown New York, and how she had lived a high life and had, you know, partied in New York and partied in Miami, and she had a friend who would run this mixology group, which was basically... Uh, they made really good drinks, and they got really popular, and so they would go and provide alcohol up and down from Miami to New York, and she got to be a part of it, and how she was telling me how much money she made, and uh, she, you know, had Scottie Pippen, like, hanging out with her one night, and just all this stuff, right? And at the very end, she says, but I'm never satisfied. And it just, I mean, it just hit me like a wave. I, I probably made a face or something. But it just, wow. After all of that, all the glam and glitter, all the fame and fortune, hanging out with famous people, you know, doing the, the club scene and the 
you know, New York, Miami, high life, you know, just the epitome of what we see the world projects is this is what you want to be eventually. This is what you work towards. You want to be the guy that when you roll up to the club, they, you know, open the chain and let you in. And you want to be the person with the really nice house and the really nice Mercedes. You want to be that guy. And whether you know it or not, the world is telling you that day in and day out on the TV, they are pushing it in your face. Even with drink commercials, you know, it's like this drink for tequila, this nasty alcohol, and it's in this club, and the lights are going, and the music is playing, and everybody's wearing these really nice suits, and there's a guy, and he's like, I don't drink often, but when I do, I drink whatever, you know, that old man, and it's like, man, you're so cool, but you're so old, and I want to be that, and that's what they tell you you should be. And here's this couple. Everything is great, but it's not enough. It's not enough. The joy gave out. And I cannot tell you how many articles I've read, how many stories I've heard of famous people, rich people, whatever it is, it doesn't matter, who don't have Jesus, who will say at the end of their life, I am never satisfied. You know, I think it's almost comical that the founding of our nation, we were told that we have unalienable rights. I said this the other day. You have life, you have liberty, but when it comes to happiness, that's a pursuit. Good luck. I mean, they even knew it back then, that happiness, that joy is simply a pursuit. We'll give you life. We'll grant that for you. We'll give you your liberty. We'll die for that. But happiness, happiness is a pursuit. Good luck with that. And I talk to so many people who have tried so many things and their wine is running out. It doesn't matter if it's your wedding day, so to speak. If you've been crowned king and queen and everything is going good without Jesus, the joy gives out. And that's what John is saying, is this. With Jesus, you will have fullness of joy. With Jesus, you will have an abundant life and put it to the test. And when you do, you will believe in his name. And in believing in his name, you will find life abundant. It's almost as if he's saying, try me on this. Try me on this. Make Jesus the answer. Do what Mary did. What did Mary do? Mary was the one that created WWJD. It wasn't whoever made the bracelets. It was Mary. What would Jesus do? And that was Mary's response. Whatever Jesus does, whatever Jesus says, however Jesus lives, whatever Jesus would do, you do that. And what John is saying is that if you live by that, your joy will be full and put that to the test. And when you do, you will know. Because everything else will fail you, but Jesus won't. So what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Do that. And in doing that, you will find your joy complete. Is your marriage lacking joy? Well, what would Jesus do? I'll tell you what Jesus would do. Ephesians chapter 5. The verse that Everybody loves to uh, hate. Verse 22, wives, be subject to your husbands. 
as to the Lord. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. Verse 24, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in, not some things, everything. This is not a popular message. And all the women said, amen. <laughs> this is not a popular message. But how is marriage doing? What I would say to the person whose marriage is suffering, how's that working for you so far? Where's the joy? How's that going? Because I tell you what, put Jesus to the test. Do it Jesus' way. Do what he says, and I promise you, you'll find joy. Brandon, that makes no sense. There's no way I'm going to honor my husband like the church is supposed to honor God and be subject to him in everything. Fine, but your joy will run out. Your joy will run out. Put him to the test. And in doing so, you will find Jesus was the Christ. He is the Son of God. And in, as I continue to believe in him, I do find abundant life. Likewise, men. If you thought you were getting off that easy. Love your wives just as Christ loves the church. It's, this is a good one. Men, your job is to die over and over and over and over again. Hey, babe, I'm going fishing. Oh, really? I'd really like you to just stay home on this Saturday. Okay. I'll die. Why? Because Christ's example to you and me, it sounds funny, but marriages are going down the hill because men will not love their wives like Christ loved the church. And the way that Christ loved the church was by dying sacrificially over and over and over again. You're in an argument. Die. Just say, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm a guy. I'm not very smart. It's in my genes. I don't understand what you're saying, babe. Maybe I don't even agree, but I tell you what, honey. I love you, and I'm sorry. Be the first to apologize. Be the first to stay home. Be the first to go to the chick flick instead of the slaughter movie. Be the first to let her choose the dinner. Be the one who dies. And you say, Brandon, that sounds so lame. When will I get a chance to do what I want to do? Fine, do what you want to do, and your joy will run out. Man, Brandon, that's kind of harsh. I know it sounds harsh, but it's not. It's the way that your joy will be complete. Do what Jesus said to do. And test me on this. Test him on this. And in doing so, watch your marriage radically changed. Watch your wife pack your tackle box for you. Watch your husband buy tickets to Twilight. No, never mind. Don't ever do that. But a different movie. Watch your marriage radically changed because you chose to do what Jesus did. You did what Jesus would do. And in that, you will find your joy complete. What about my job? What about my job? Colossians tells us to do everything as unto the Lord and not unto men. Yeah, but Brandon, you don't understand. There are people doing half as much, making twice as much as I am. Yeah, I know. But your boss is not 
Don Dazarn or whoever your boss is, your boss, your master, your Lord is God. And he's the one you work for. And so every day, whether you're making pennies on someone else's dollars, you do your best. And you do it unto the Lord. And you keep a good attitude. And you bear that witness. Even if you go to your grave making eight fifty an hour, you do that. And watch your joy be complete. It's amazing. I don't do this that often. But when I do, I find that my days at work are much better. My joy is complete when you do it Jesus' way. And we could go on and on. Are you struggling financially? Is money an issue for you? Do it Jesus' way. What would Jesus do? Oh, great. Here we go. Pastor's calling for the tithe. Absolutely. I can tell you in the last year, Alyssa and I's financial situation has changed head over heels for the better since we started tithing more faithfully. It's unbelievable. That doesn't make sense, Brandon. You can't have more money if you give more money. That math doesn't work. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Neither did Mary when Jesus said, what does this have to do with you and me? My hour has not yet come. Mary went, <laughs> no idea what that means. That doesn't make any sense to me. But I'll still do what you say. I'll still do what you say. And we could go on and on and on with any subject in your life and in my life. What would Jesus do? Do that. And watch your joy be complete. Not just half full. Not just all full, but running over. Jesus came, John 10.10. 10. Actually, John 10.10, 10, the beginning. The thief comes to steal and destroy. Do it the way of the world, and you're just going to find death and destruction. But Jesus came, John 10.10 10 says, to give life and life abundant. And so my encouragement this morning is stolen from whoever made those neat bracelets 20 years ago, and that's this, what would Jesus do? May that be the motto, truly, with which we live by. And John said, I picked this miracle for a reason, because Jesus came to change things up. Instead of doing things the same way that you've been doing them, the stone pots that represented the repetition of rituals and religion over and over and over again. And how many of you guys, how many of us have tried the same thing over and over and waited for a different result? You know what that is? It's actually the definition of insanity. Doing the same thing over and over and hoping for a different result, and yet we do that. And Jesus came and said, forget that. Do it my way. Let me be what fills your life with joy and watch your life radically changed. And here's the cool thing about doing that is that it gets better as you go. It gets better as you go. The head waiter there came and said, you saved the best for last. And that's what is so awesome about the Christian experience is it gets better every day, every time you make a choice for the Lord, every time you adjust your way of thinking to the Lord's way of thinking, pieces and parts of your life just get better and better and better and better. And you meet people who always seem happy, always seem like their lives are together. And you're like, dude, what are you drinking? What wine did you drink? And their answer is Jesus. It's Jesus. It's not just a slogan. Man, it is 
the key to a fulfilled and joy-filled life. In Jesus' name, let's stand together. Father, Lord, for those here who are believers, we can attest that any time that we try to do it our way, it just never works out. Oh, there might be joy for a season. Uh, you know, it might be a fun party for a little bit, but eventually the joy always runs out. And Father, for those of us who are already calling upon your name, Lord, we acknowledge that your way is truly the best way, Father. And it's not a life of misery and sacrifice and just woe is me, monk living. But your way, Father, is abundant life. It's to be full of joy and even happiness at times, Father. We thank you for that. But Lord, I can't help but just be impressed that Lord, for those who don't know you at all, the first step is to invite you to the wedding. Lord, we've got to be married to you. The church is called the Bride of Christ. And I love, Lord, how in our story, in this culture, it wasn't the bride who had to provide the wine. It was not the bride's responsibility to bring the provision. That was on the groom. And Father, you are our groom. And you've called us to a wedding to say, I do, and join in this life with you. And Father, if there are any here who say, man, I would like to know what joy is like. I've tried everything else. And I'm still not satisfied. Father, I pray that today would be the day.